Have you ever been to the beach with a bunch of kids and they're building a sandcastle near the water, close enough to the water that if they dig down deep enough, they actually hit water, you know, right down there by the beach? And they'll build the sandcastle and sometimes they'll dig a little trench from their sandcastle, they'll dig a little trench down to the ocean and, you know, kind of have this little kind of, uh, you know, canal of river. And sometimes what little kids do, which is really cute, is they'll, um, when they dig down on the shore there and they hit water, um, they start to take the little shovel and they scoop the water out and they throw it back into the ocean. You ever seen kids do that? Maybe your kids have done that. Um, that's, that's this incredible uh, picture. It's cute because it's ironic. You know, they think they're adding to the ocean and they're adding nothing to the ocean. Um, everything they have in that little shovel was given to them by the ocean. And when we come to Galatians chapter 1, which is our text for this morning, we're going to find a very impassioned Paul writing to Galatia who is frustrated that they are trying to flick into the ocean of grace teaspoons of their own works, their own righteousness, their own obedience, thinking that's somehow adding to their salvation. Thinking that the ocean of Christ's grace requires their teaspoon flick of obedience in order for them to be saved. And Paul is really frustrated by this because the core of Christian faith is not that we are obedient enough that God accepts us. The core of Christian faith is that Christ came and was perfectly obedient for us, and our faith in him makes God accept us. That's the core of Christianity. And so, in the words of Augustine, you don't honor a fountain by throwing water into it. You honor a fountain by drinking from the fountain. And as we come to God's word this morning in Galatians chapter 1, let's take a good drink of the fountain of God's grace, and let's be on the receiving end of his goodness this morning. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there's some of you who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be cursed. As I've said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? For am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age and among my own people. I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
I did not immediately consult with anyone or go up to Jerusalem or to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and I remained with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And when I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And they only were hearing it. And they said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. Now, as we come to this text, we're going to, look at, we're going to focus on the last half of it. The, last week we looked at the first nine verses, and today we're going to look at verses 10 through 24. And if you're newer to the church, this whole series is, uh, will be on uh, kwredeemer.com. You can go there. You can follow us on iTunes to get it. But we're going to focus on the second half of what Paul is getting at here. And here is today's sermon in a sentence. It's that we have assurance of salvation because of God's grace, not our obedience. We are saved by our Redeemer, not our Reform. And that's what Paul's getting at in Galatians 1. He's saying if we mess that up, we mess the whole thing up. If we get that wrong, everything else we teach is going to be wrong. Because Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one by which all the angles of all the other teaching of all Scripture are riding on this. And so there is, as he said in verse 8, no other gospel. And so if our understanding of the sufficiency of grace is off, everything is going to be off. And now our world is reciprocal, right? It's give and take. It's tit for tat. Um, And so the true gospel is hard to accept that Christ would actually do everything and require nothing from me. And the perversion of the gospel is very easy to embrace because if I say to us and our North American pragmatic minds, it's Jesus' work at the cross, the life he lived, and the life you're living, those things together save you, our, our mind says that makes sense. That's right. But it's dead wrong. Dead wrong. And we have to get this right. Otherwise, everything else is going to be dead wrong. And that, which is, of course, Paul's whole, Paul's whole point. And so... The important th- we're going to ask three questions of this text this morning. The first question we're going to ask is, on what basis can we claim that grace alone is enough? And the second question we're going to ask is, why is it critical that grace alone is enough? And the third question we're going to ask is, how do we live as a result of the grace alone being enough? And so as we look at this first question, on what basis can we claim that this is true? On what basis are we claiming that grace alone is enough? Paul says that this isn't his message. He didn't come up with this idea. Paul says in verse 12 that this was given to him by the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. If you read Acts chapter 9, you find that the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road met Paul himself. And right here, Paul is saying, I didn't write this. I didn't come up with this. Paul was an expert in the law. He was an expert in the law. He had the the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's pretty decent. He understood God's law. He was an expert in God's law. And now he's coming and he's saying that Christ has actually fulfilled God's law. And that this isn't something that he came up with, but that Jesus gave it to him. And Jesus is God. 
And so this is the reason why we, we hang our hat on this thing called grace alone. The reason that he's only even an apostle is because Jesus met him and gave this revelation of his grace to Paul. So today we have people that can do apostolic work, but nobody has apostolic authority. In other words, there's no capital A apostles today. You can preach the gospel like the apostles did. You can plant churches like the apostles did. When I was in Ethiopia, I preached in four churches planted by the same guy who planted 21 churches. That's amazing. But he's not a capital A apostle because he didn't have the revelation of Jesus Christ face to face and walk with Christ like the apostles did. So we can do the work, but we don't have the authority. Paul is speaking with an authority. Saying grace alone is enough and I have this on authority because Jesus gave me this message. I didn't come up with it, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays it out. He says, hey, listen, the resurrected Christ appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the 12 and he appeared to 500 people at one time and then he appeared to the least of all, me. Well, this is the authority that he's appealing to. And so we believe this gospel. We believe that grace is enough on the basis of Christ's words himself. We believe the gospel because the resurrection is true. The gospel isn't true because we choose to believe it, because we arbitrarily say, well, we have faith, and so therefore it must be true. But it's true because the resurrection is true. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, uh, author and apologist, he once wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so Paul is pointing out that this God-given gospel was actually the same gospel that those who walked with Jesus got. You see it there in verse uh, 18, if you look at it. He says, I, went, I met with Peter. Some of your translations may, may say Cephas, but it, it's Peter. That's just a different, uh, that's the uh, uh, Greek translation of his name was Cephas. But Peter, so Peter's, Peter basically says, yes, this is the gospel. Look in verse, uh, the next verse in 19. James says, yes, this is the gospel. And then when you get to verse 23, if you look at it, the apostles who actually walked with Christ, they are rejoicing. They're saying, we can't believe that the guy who was persecuting us for going around and saying grace alone is enough, he's now going around and preaching grace alone is enough. They're amazed by this. So on what basis can we claim that grace alone is enough? That was Christ's message. That was what Christ taught Paul. That was what Christ taught the apostles. He came to fulfill everything. And that is the cornerstone through which all the rest of our doctrine and all the rest of our understanding of the Bible has to go through that cross-shaped grace alone lens so that we can understand and live to the glory of that grace uh, properly without earning, being rolling around in the back of our heads. So if that's the basis on which we say that grace is enough, then why is it critical? Why is that so important? Why is Paul writing Galatians 1 like a fiery wolverine just freaking out and saying, like, you got to get this right, guys, and this is like code red danger, that you're trying to flick the water of your own self-righteousness into the ocean of God's grace. You're not helping. The, you don't help Jesus out. You revel in everything that he's done, and now you live to... Why is this so critical? Well, I want you to imagine a puzzle. I come in here, and I, I want you to do a puzzle. And so I dump the puzzle on the ground... And there are 31,102 pieces. It's a very specific number for a very specific reason. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. 31,102 pieces. And then I take the box top with me. So you don't actually have a picture. You've just got 31,102 verses in the Bible. That's how many verses there are in the Bible. 
Now you try and do your theology, you try and understand the goodness of God's grace, you try and fit the Bible together with 31,102 pieces, but you're not looking at the box top, which is the grace of Christ, that makes it all make sense, that puts it all into, how it fit together. See, the, the box top of Scripture is a U-shaped mural. I'll tell you what the box top looks like. It's a U-shaped mural. It starts with this beautiful mural of perfect creation. And then that mural shifts into like this dark and, and, and depressing image of damnation that came by man's sin in Genesis 2. But then it goes to this glorious picture of redemption, which comes in the cross of Christ in his grace and sufficiency. And it ends in the book of Revelation of the restoration. That the grace of God is not anti the material world. The grace of God is perfecting the material world. It is, it is perfecting it. We're, we're, we're not Stoics and, and, and we're not aesthetics that are trying to escape the material because it's bad. God is restoring it. That's the picture. And you want to know that critically throughout that mural on the box top of creation, damnation, restoration, and uh, I'm sorry, redemption and restoration, strategically throughout that mural, there are cross shaped pieces. And without those cross-shaped grace alone pieces, it doesn't fit together. That's why it's so critical that we understand this grace. Because before Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Paul was getting it all wrong. But Paul was an expert in the law. But he still got it all wrong. So it's critical that we get this. Look at, look at verse 13. He says, I was intensely persecuting the church. What does that mean? It means, who, who was he persecuting? He was persecuting the people who were saying, grace alone. Christ has done it all. We will never be enough. We will never do enough. But Jesus did enough, and I'm with him. My faith is with him. I'm clinging to the cross. I'm clinging to my Savior. I believe in the resurrection. He's enough. I'm not going to do enough good things in my life to be okay with God. He did, and I'm with him. And Paul said, that's a heresy. And Paul went around violently trying to wipe those people out. So he was getting it all wrong. And then what we, what we find here is that he didn't have a reconsideration. It wasn't like this gradual shift. He didn't adjust his doctrine and kind of, well, no, maybe, and actually, and slowly kind of morph it. It was like, this is wrong. And Christ comes and reveals himself to Paul, and there's a 180-degree divine turn, and there's a 180-degree divine rejection of flicking the teaspoon of his own obedience into the ocean of Christ's perfect obedience. There's a rejection of it. That's the, that's the magnitude of what's going on here. He didn't gradually change his views. He abandoned his views. It's radical. Christ is everything or he's nothing. He's sufficient or he's not. To the degree that we try to add to Jesus, we erase him. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians 1. That's why it's so critical. That's what helps us understand the rest of all scripture. That's what puts the rest of all the Bible in, in context in terms of we're not reading a book that's about us at the center and our lives. We're reading a book that's about Christ at the center and his life for us. And that does a beautiful reforming and renewing and reorienting and recalibrating work in our hearts. That more and more we want to live to the glory of that grace. And more and more we want to hate the, the sin that is contrary to the beautiful love and grace and obedience of the Savior. But it, puts it takes it out of the category of earning. There is no earning to be done. And that's why it's so incredibly critical. Have you ever, you know, and have you ever had a paradigm shift? Because Paul has this divine paradigm shift and it's painful. Have you ever believed something wholeheartedly and then you found out it's not true? 
Do you know how hard that is? How painful it is? Have you ever believed something and acted on it and spoke on it and then had to go back to, your, to, go back to that person at work and say, I was dead wrong. I believed it was right. I thought it was right. I was dead wrong. Please forgive me. Have you ever done that? And as a, as a, uh, as a business owner or as a manager and you've thought this was right and you taught this was right and you explained this was right and you thought that it was right and the staff were all like, okay. And then you have to go back to your whole team and say, I was dead wrong. I was wrong. Do you know how painful that is? Do you know why most people don't do that? Because they're addicted to this little thing called the fragility of their own egos. I'm not making this up. I heard about it one time. I don't struggle with with ego, but people I've heard of struggle with it all the time. Right? Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how hard it was for me when back in 2010, Susan is coming to me and saying, Paul, I heard this thing called the gospel. And by the way, P.S., you're not preaching it. You know what it was like laying in bed night after night feeling like theology is destroying my marriage? Because Susan's like, you're, you're off. And she was right. And the more I started reading, the more I started realizing I'm wrong. Some of you in this room, I sat down with you over coffee and looked you right in the eye and you knew me as pastoring for a long time. And I'm like, I was dead wrong. That's false teaching. It's not true. Some of you were like, good, I'm glad you caught up. And others of you were like, and others of you rejected my repentance because I was like, I'm dead wrong. And you were like, well, if you're dead wrong, that means I'm dead wrong and I can't be dead wrong because I'm always bang on. So no, no, Paul, you're a good guy. You're great. No, you're great. Your preaching's great. No, it's dead wrong. Do you know how painful that is? How horrifying it is? You look in the mirror, you're like, I'm a preacher that doesn't preach Christ. How ridiculous that is, embarrassing. Do you understand? Do you know what it's like to sit around your table and look at your spouse and be like, honey, I was dead wrong. I am dead wrong. Kids, forgive me. Daddy was dead wrong. Paul has this divine U-turn. He doesn't morph it and change it. He doesn't rebrand. He repents. I heard John Ortland say one time when I was at a conference, uh, Dr. Ortland said, some of you pastors, you need to repent to your churches. Some of you pastors need to put a tombstone out in front of your church with the date on it and be like, this is the date that the church died and this is the date that we're starting to preach Christ and Him crucified. And I was sitting there going, oh man, this is horrifying. This is horrifying. I'm the guy. Dead wrong. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's doing here. But God, the grace of Christ propelled this divine U-turn. In verse 14, what it reveals is he was trying to be morally right. And the reason why Paul brings up his testimony um, is for a very specific reason. He's bringing it up to say, I was fixated on being morally right, but my pursuit of morality didn't make me okay with God. And so... Throughout the whole New Testament, you find that Christ is greater than the temple. That's why he retired the temple. He was greater than the priest. That's why he retired the work of the priest. Christ was the greatest sacrifice, which is why there's no more sacrifices. If you touched the priest and you were unclean, you made him unclean. If you touched the temple and you were unclean, you made the temple unclean. That's why you had to stay outside the gates. But when you were unclean and you touched Christ, Christ made the unclean clean. He's greater. That's why he retired the law of Moses. He retired the whole sacrificial system. That's why Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the the ceremonial worship laws are retired because Christ has fulfilled them all. 
and God's moral law of the Ten Commandments that order society, we now have a new relationship with. We still uh, uh, adhere to that desire to keep the Ten Commandments and it, uh, because from the freedom of Christ fulfilling them and doing them perfectly, we now say, oh God, would you now do this work in my life that I would live to your glory and love my neighbor that way? With ten words, God created the cosmos from chaos and then with... In, in creation. And then with ten words, God created social order and he brought cosmos to the chaos. And if you re- start removing the Ten Commandments, you return back to chaos. But Christ has fulfilled it all. He's done it all. So now we're free. Free to live to God's glory. See, if you bring the law back, you bring the curse of having to fulfill the whole law back. And the bad news of bringing the law back is that the, the standard for you, the requirement for you is not progress, It's perfection. It's not live a little better this next week than you did last week and God's happy with you. No, it's perfection. And so that's why we don't bring the law back. That's why we we revel in the fact that Christ has fulfilled the law. And so Paul gives us this picture in, 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 uh, in the first chapter of two different ways to run away from grace. We can run away from grace in our rebellion not running from God, but we can also run away from his grace through our rule-keeping, trusting in our own obedience to God. We can run away from him, his grace both ways. We can try and flick teaspoons of obedience into the ocean of his grace and trust that those teaspoons are going to save us because we're somehow contributing. Two different ways. You see, the, 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 the rebellious heart says, I don't need God. There is no God. I'll be God, and I'll live by my own law. And the religious heart commits the same error on the other side of the ugly coin and says, I can keep God's law. Both are dead wrong. But in the middle, there's this repentant heart that says, Christ has kept God's law for me. And oh God, would you renew my heart? Would you do a work in me that I would desire to love, to live to the glory of of your law. And Luther said in his commentary on Galatians during the time of the Reformation, don't turn Jesus into another Moses. It's not your obedience that's saving you. It's his perfect obedience for you that's saving you. You're saved by a redeemer, not your reform. And that frees you to all kinds of glorious and beautiful reform. It propels it. And so we have, to, we have to rest in the glorious, scandalous nature of what the gospel actually is. That's what Paul is getting at here in this first chapter. See, the answer is not to do both and. Well, maybe it's both and. I mean, maybe it's both God's grace and it's our obedience. I mean, a lot of things are both and. You know, that's a facetious voice. I shouldn't do that. It's too late. I did it. I think it's funny. Uh, but if both and, here's the problem with both and. Galatians 1 is about, is, is Paul is taking a bazooka to both and. Do you see this? There is no both and in the gospel. In the grace of Christ. I'll tell you who did both and. After the time of the Reformation in 1545, the church in, in Rome came together in the Council of Trent. And the church in Rome from 1545 to 1563 was in the Council of Trent. And they had these canons that they wrote. And in uh, these canons that they wrote, canons 9, 12, 14, 23, 24, 30, and 33, if you're interested in bedtime reading, if you'd like to read the canons of, of 
of the Council of Trent, this is what they said. They said it's both and. The church in Rome said, no, 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 no. It's not grace alone. I'll quote, it. I'll quote one of the canons for you. It's because I read it to prepare for the sermon, just in case somebody wants to come up after the service and go, what about James? I'll tell you all about James. Stay tuned. But the th- here's the thing. Here's what they wrote. They said, let him who believes that, grace, uh, that the grace of Christ and faith in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation be anathema. That's what they wrote. They said, let him be cursed. They said, if you think Jesus was enough, you're cursed. That's what they said. It's faith plus charity. It's faith plus your works. It's both things. That's what they said. So I grew up as a Protestant, quite Catholic, actually, in my understanding of God's grace. Because if you ask me in 2010, hey, if Jesus saves you by his, by his saving grace, um, can you lose your salvation? I would have said, oh, yeah, totally you can. I said, oh, yeah, if you don't keep living in obedience to God, then it's game over. Now, that's dead wrong. What's saving me? See, if I run away from, if I run away from Jesus, it's not, it's not because Jesus said, well, your obedience wasn't sufficient, so I've, let, I've, I've loosened my grip on you. I mean, if I do that, the, the better argument is I was never saved in the first place. Because what, what the scandalous grace of Christ does, when you realize Jesus did everything for you, apart from you, that propels a desire to, to live to the glory of the one who saved you. I mean, that's what it does. It's not a logical conclusion to say, curb grace, balance it out. Don't tell, don't tell Redeemer they're actually free on Sunday morning. They won't come back next Sunday. Right? They won't come back. Don't tell them. They'll say, oh, good, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to go to church anymore. That's the dumbest. What? This is the logical conclu- conclusion of being united to Jesus? It's like, I'm so united to Jesus, I don't want to be with Jesus? Like, this is the logic? It's Romans 6, verse 1, by the way. So it's just, it's crazy. That's not what happens. So Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't run away from Jesus in your rebellion and don't run away from Jesus in your rule keeping. Because at the ground zero of the gospel is this shocking transfer that Christ has taken everything that we deserve, which is our punishment and wrath of God, and he's given us everything that he deserves, which is freedom, freedom in, in, in God. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And so in verse 15, he says that he was set apart before the foundations of the world. Look at that. I mean, that's, he's just boasting in God's grace. He just can't get over the fact that God saved him. It's amazing. We do respond, of course, and people always say, well, I, don't we choose Jesus? Well, of course we do. But we're only choosing him because he chose us first. We're responding. And why are we even bragging about that? That's like a building being on fire and you inhale so much smoke you pass out and your heart stops and a firefighter grabs an axe, kicks the door down, comes in, resuscitates your dead, lifeless body because your heart stopped and then as you come to in the smoke, <laughs> he says, we've got to get out of here and you reach up and you grab his hand and he drags you out of the burning building and he saves your life and then all you ever talk about is how you reached up and grabbed his hand. What? What are we doing? We're boasting in the absolute wrong thing. C.S. Lewis, the writer and apologist, would explode verses like verse 15 about the grace of God. And he would weave it into his, his, uh, his writing. One of the books he wrote was called The Silver Chair. And there's a story where there's this young girl, Jill, and she's being chased by these bullies. And she's running through the street and she's like, Hell, somebody! She's just crying out for somebody. Somebody! Keyword. Anybody, somebody. And she goes and she opens this door, which has never been unlocked. Never been unlocked. But she opens it and it's unlocked and she gets through. She ends up in Narnia. 
And when she's in Narnia, she meets Aslan, the great lion. And Aslan, the great lion, who's, you know, Christologically, it's a picture of Jesus. Aslan says to Jill, he says, I've got this thing that I've called you to. And he starts speaking about his calling to Jill. And Jill interrupts Aslan and she says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't, you didn't call me. I was the one calling. I was the one saying, somebody help me. And Aslan, uh, the great lion, looks at Jill and he says, and I quote, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of his grace. It's the beauty of what he's done. And we have nothing, well, there's nothing for us to boast in but the greatness of what he did. It's so beautiful. Why did, why did God choose Paul? He tells us in verse 15. Why did God choose any of us? He didn't choose him because Paul was pleasurable. Paul was killing the church, remember? He didn't choose you. What were you up to when God saved you? Nothing good. You think God looked down from heaven and was like, whoa, now that guy's banging on all cylinders. We've got to get him into the kingdom. You should probably reread Galatians 1. You weren't up to anything. You didn't even know you needed saving. This is, the, this is the scandalous nature of grace. You're just bumbling along. You know you're made of dirt, right? And you're going to return there one day. Right? So this is like your trajectory. And then God comes in in his great grace and he interrupts this trajectory to say, no, 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 no. Your ending isn't going to be darkness and death. It's going to be life and light in God. The resurrection of Christ is going to be yours. I'm going to unite you to my son. That's scandalous grace. That's verse 15. Paul says, if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. If you, get the na- if you get the nature of this grace alone wrong and you, th- and you start having arguments about flicking teaspoons of your own obedience into the ocean of God's grace, you're not going to understand any of this. You're going to be doing cut and paste theology your whole life. Well, what about that verse? Well, I hear what you're saying, Paul, and that was a pretty passionate sermon. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be doing None of you have voices like that. I, I apologize. I'm going to see Jim Gaffigan next week. I'm really excited about it. And he always has these internal voices, and now I'm doing them, and it's really condescending. Okay, I'm going to stop. Okay, not you, but other people, okay, who might be like, well, what about this verse? What about that one? I hear what you're saying. Okay, yeah, but you're just going to be 31,102 pieces you're going to try and fit together. You know, what are you doing? No, 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 no. We can't understand any of it without the Christological lens of the cross putting it all in focus for us of why the Christian would do anything about what is propelling our ethic, about why we would do business this way, see marriage that way, view relationships that way, have a particular sexual ethic that looks that way, right? Love our neighbor that way. Love those whose values totally contradict ours in that way. Love our enemies in that way. I mean, it, it, it makes everything fit because it's being propelled from freedom. Christ has done it all. All. Now you're free. So the question is, what, do you, what are you going to do with your freedom? How do, you, how do you now live to the glory of the one who has done everything for you? And then we begin to see, as, the, as, as Galatians unfolds in the weeks to come, how that unfolds and how that looks. This beautiful picture. So what was, what was threatening Galatians, this is important for us to understand, the threat to the gospel wasn't from outside the church, it was from inside the church. That's where the threat was. Right? Have you ever talked to somebody who's never been to church a day in their life, but their idea is, well, I'm not good enough to go to church. Have you ever talked to anybody like that? Where did they get that idea from? I'll tell you. Us! What a stupid idea! But they they didn't come up with that. They got that idea from us. Because historically speaking, when we're not, you know, tracking with the gospel, we fall into ditches like drunken peasants. That's what the church has always done. So we get these beautiful texts like Galatians, which is like a code where, hey, oh yeah, though, that's right, actually, Jesus did actually do everything. 
We are actually free. You now actually get to go and, and live your life to, to God's glory without fear of, of whether or not you're, you're doing enough. Any teaching that removes Christ as the author and finisher of our faith by insisting that we are the contributors and sustainers of our faith is anti-gospel. Anti-gospel. You're not sustaining your faith through your obedience. Your faith is sustained because of Christ's perfect obedience. Which liberates you to all kinds of beautiful obedience, does it not? I mean, that's precisely what it, what it does. And so I'm going to close with this. How do we live as a result of God's grace actually being enough? When you look in verse 16, Paul says, That I might preach. Do you see those words? That I might preach. Jesus did all this that I might. That's, that's a key phrase. Don't let that get lost. Right? But as one who has received this grace and rested in this grace, I'm now free and I go and I share the good news of this gospel. And so historically, throughout the whole history of the church, God has revealed himself to the church that he might minister his grace through the church. And we do that with great freedom. It's not a burden. We're not, we don't, we're not uh, under some sort of... Uh, burdensome religious duty it's 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 a freeing it's freedom and it's delight because we have hope we share the gospel because it is our hope in life and death that we are not our own but that we belong body soul and life and death to our faithful savior lord jesus christ who through his shed blood has done it all and that as a result of that he has set us free from all the power of the devil and he preserves us in such a way that Nothing happens in our life unless our Heavenly Father permits it. Nothing. Not a hair falls from our head. That's the freedom we live in. That's the freedom. That in the end we're united to Christ, we're reconciled to God, and as a result of that, the chief aim of our lives is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We have the assurance of salvation because of God's grace, not our obedience, and we are saved by our Redeemer, not our reform. Let's pray.